What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So, uh, off the record, do you want to maybe go grab some dinner? Um, actually, Aaron, I think you're so great. And, uh, but I'm a writer. I'm your writer. <laughs> you're my subject. And uh, from now on, we, we need to just keep it professional. I think we really like each other and we should start dating. Handsome, successful Dr. Bill Hader pursues self-described train wreck and probable alcoholic Amy Schumer. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we have a sighting of the rare manic pixie dream guy. Takes one to know one. Don't make me blush, Adam. It Girl, Schumer, and Hader are the stars of the new film from director Judd Apatow, Trainwreck. Our review, plus the movie's top five comedy ensembles. Let's wear these crazy hats when we record tonight, Adam. Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is once again brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And as we like to do here during this part of the show, Josh, we're going to highlight a couple of titles you can see right now if you subscribe to Mubi, like A Simple Life, reuniting superstar Andy Lau with his godmother, Diani Ip. On the big screen for the first time in 23 years, A Simple Life is a deeply moving story about the relationship between a young man and a family servant that is handled with exquisite affection and grace by Anne Hui. Blissfully Yours, also at Mubi, part of their July retrospective of one of the most acclaimed directors of the 21st century, Palm Door winning Thai filmmaker Josh Hit it out of the park. Some call him Joe. Yes. I call him a Pichapong Rasatakul. Wow. So well done. It is, movie says, a gorgeous reverie on young love. And who doesn't love a gorgeous reverie? On Young Love. Movie also has a room with a view. Merchant Ivory set the gold standard for costume dramas and became art house sensations with this swooning sensual take on E.M. Forster's classic romance. It stars a cast of British royalty and was feeded with three Oscars. Room with a view, famously for me, the movie I still haven't seen, but went to when I was about 12 years old in small town Iowa. I think I've told this story before, but me and one of my buddies went to it because we thought it had to be some kind of like Hitchcock thriller. Not okay. that we were not that we were <laughs> that would be odd too. Cinephiles. You know? Yeah, but at the same time a room with a view. It sounded okay. a little bit sinister. You were and, some rear window action. Yeah, it'd be suspenseful. You, and then And when did you dodge it to go see Pet Cemetery Three? <laughs> exactly. No, you wouldn't do that. I mean, no, too scary. Yeah. But we didn't last five minutes into a room with a view <laughs> wondering what this costume drama was. And we weren't the only ones. And we actually left and got our money back. See, this is why good movies don't get like, to Iowa. I was like you 10. Did it. You did It's your fault, Adam. <laughs> anyway, Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You've made me feel so guilty. Yeah, you do I'm feel like, guilty. I'm going to go watch it right now on movie. <laughs> listening to Film Spotting, attention Judd Apatow. He's listening, right, Josh? You're going to have to stick around 
till the end of the show to find out if you and your freaks and geeks slash 40-year-old virgins slash knocked-up cronies make the cut in this week's top five, the movie's best comedy ensembles. Or he could just go to the website and check the list. We did record that about three and a half years ago, you know. Okay, so we're taking a little bit of a break this summer, but live the illusion, Josh. That top five plus a Tom Cruise deathmatch and more later in the show. But first, Apatow returns to the director's chair with Trainwreck. Can the man who made movie careers for Seth Rogen and Steve Carell do the same with Amy Schumer? I'm just a modern chick who does what she wants. Last week, it was this guy. Is that wine in the box? Hey, Mark Wahlberg, shut up. Mark Wahlberg? Mark Wahlberg's like 150 pounds. I look like Mark Wahlberg ate Mark Wahlberg. Before you judge, you should know I'm doing fine. My friends are awesome, my apartment's sick, and I have a great job at a men's magazine. I like you, Amy. You're clever, but you're not too brainy. You're pretty-ish, and you're not gorgeous. You're approachable. Thank you. Yeah. I'm giving you an assignment. I need a profile on a sports doctor. So you're doing the article on me? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. We watching Downton Abbey later? LeBron, I'm being interviewed. Listen, I'm watching it tonight because I'm not going to go to practice and all the guys are talking about it and I'm left out. Tall. Do you follow sports? Sports. I love them. Who's your favorite team? The Orlando Blooms. Do you want to get a drink? Yeah. The last time Judd Apatow made a film as a director, Adam, was This Is 40, a knocked-up spin-off that neither of us really liked. For me... It went soft, backing away from the sort of confessional bitterness about married life that made for what I thought were its best moments. But in the end, it deflated. Maybe Cassie and his entire family had something to do with that, except for Paul Rudd, of course. So far, that's the only Apatow film that I have not liked. Now he directs Trainwreck from a script by the movie star Amy Schumer. Best known for Comedy Central's Inside Amy Schumer, this is a comedian who only knows confessional bitterness. Her sketch show often function as a conflicted tell-all, and Trainwreck does something similar. Schumer's character, named Amy, is a promiscuous, hard-drinking magazine writer for a trashy men's magazine who falls for the nice sports doctor, Bill Hader, she's assigned to profile. So Trainwreck could go either way, Adam. Was this a further softening of the Apatow sensibility for you, or would you say that Schumer's acerbity won the day? It definitely didn't win the day, though I don't think my problem with This is 40 was the fact that it went soft. It was that it was a train wreck. <laughs> Actually, that movie was a train wreck just in terms of its structure and really how shaggy it was, for lack of a better term. That's always been a little bit of a criticism with Apatow in terms of the movies are a lot longer than comedies tend to be. But that's not a problem if the scenes are funny. And there are a lot of funny scenes in several of his movies, and there are a lot of funny scenes in Trainwreck. There are also a handful of scenes where they do feel gratuitous. They feel like they had a great idea for a little improv bit, and he wanted to let the cast have some fun with it, and a few of them just don't pay off at all, and pretty well come close to derailing the film for me. We'll see maybe where I'm at by the end of this review. We did just come from the film, so it is a bit of a still-processing review. But Trainwreck isn't a mess. This movie is pretty tightly structured, in fact, maybe to a fault, because I think it actually plays out in a mostly predictable way. And I think going back to your point about This is 40, this is a movie that shows signs of being a little bit too soft, a movie that definitely wanted to reinforce some good old traditional values, which Apatow's films always come around to. And I don't fundamentally have a problem with the fact that monogamy 
tends to always win the day and people find some comfort in their families in those films and reject a certain type of lifestyle, they grow up. I mean, that was the big complaint about movies like Knocked Up is we were just watching a bunch of men who were stuck in adolescence finally grow up a little bit. And that's essentially what we have here, only with Amy Schumer. I can't help but wonder what this movie would have been like had some of the people from Schumer's show, and she has a variety of directors, if they had directed this movie instead of Apatow, it wouldn't have gotten made. That's probably the biggest issue here. And of course, I don't know how much softening went on because of Apatow. I don't know how the script started or what contributions came from who during the process of writing it. But nevertheless, I wanted more of that acerbic wit and that raunchiness that it certainly has in spades at the beginning of the film. And through the first half of it even, but by the end, like I said, it is pretty predictable. It's fairly cliche as much as it tries to subvert certain jokes here and there or even make nods to other movies and then quickly undercut those. The movie definitely winks at us a little bit and knows that it's following certain conventions. By the end, though, it fulfilled a lot of those conventions and the result was really only mildly satisfying. What about you? I'm going to try to talk you into this okay? because I'm taking the glass half full approach to this. I, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a little bit of what you're talking about going on. Absolutely. But for me, it was mostly a case not of the softening of Schumer's comedy, but more of making Apatow a little bit spikier. That's how I saw this. Hmm. No doubt that the elbows would have been sharper here if some of Schumer's collaborators on her show had been involved in it. I mean, that that is some raunchy stuff there, and they go all the way with it. Very funny, very smart, and definitely this would have been a different film. This is, a, this is an R, mostly, I think, for the hysterical sex scenes that we get in the film. Yeah. Uh, but it's still not the sort of R that the Comedy Central show is. And I think part of the reason for that is due to the script and where it goes, but I think it's also structurally a film like this demands some sort of resolution. Yeah. Those skits don't need resolution. They can stick in the grime mm-hmm. and leave you there. That's that's just the structure of the medium. But here, I have to say, Schumer was a real jolt, I think, to the Apatow formula. Even though she bends herself to it a little bit, I think overall this really injected and brought about what is great with him, and that's getting these casts together and letting moments breathe, letting mm-hmm. comedy breathe. I know that sometimes I'll be curious to hear which scenes you think almost derailed it because I didn't feel like there were any. There were some oh, that a huge the clunker. air kind of goes out and you can see, all right, this one should have been cut tight. But for me, I will take those. I will take the batting average that he manages here because some of these that go on and on, I thought to myself thinking, this is so great that we're not jumping away from this, that we're letting the actors have fun, that it's building. And again, a couple of the sex scenes work this way. And we're not just getting to the next gag and moving along. So I thought it worked in his favor, that style that he has here. You know, overall, Schumer seems to have, in terms of embracing that traditional conservative values that Apatow's films do, here I think there was a nice balance, which is in her show as well, of a conflicted sort of confessional comedy where she is not quite sure about the morality of these things herself. And you can sense that here. I think it gets amplified by Apatow a little bit. But for me, the film softens only in structure, but not in spirit by the end. That climax 
there are some clunker choices in terms of narrative. I'll give you that. Maybe not moments for me, but in terms of narrative, how it comes around to the inevitable reunion of the characters. But I think it does save itself with that final scene that you were alluding to, that it works in terms of spirit, okay? Mm -hmm. These characters maybe earn that conventional ending in a way that the characters in This Is 40 don't. I didn't believe them. I didn't believe their their struggles. And I didn't believe the reconciliation that This Is 40 forced upon them. That felt tacked on. For sure. And it felt false to what we had seen before. Here, I think we follow this trajectory that Amy, the character, goes through from her early lines where she says, I'm fine. I'm in control to one of the later lines where she says, I'm not okay, I'm broken. It earns that trajectory here with a whole lot of laughs along the way. Just breathe. Just breathe. It's fine. Who wants to have kids? Like right now. People talk about that. Not really. It's fine. I don't know anyone that talks about that. He's great. It's normal. I think Aaron's great. I really like him. Can you tell the members of Heaven's Gate in there to relax? No, he's too nice. He's not too nice. Yes, he is. He's too nice for me. You know it. No, I, no. He's the perfect amount of nice that you deserve. Yeah, but you know what? There's deal breakers across the board with him. Like, the sex is good. It's, like, really good. Like, it's, it's great, but it's not, like, the best I've ever had. You know? You're right. You don't want best sex that you've ever had, guy. No, you want to stay with the best you've ever had, guy. No, you don't. That's a creepy guy. You don't want to be with that guy. Best sex that you've ever had, guy, is in jail. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I've been thinking about maybe reaching out to him. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film that opens this weekend, Trainwreck. It's written by and stars Amy Schumer, directed by Judd Apatow. I think a lot of those moments are earned, and I think a big part of it is I think Amy Schumer actually delivers a pretty strong, dramatic performance yes. in addition to being very funny. She's a legitimate actress, and I'd really like to see her do more things, not just her material. I think one thing we can agree on, Josh, is that this is a much, much better movie than This Is 40. We'll just get that out there if it's not clear already, and I don't know how much you need to talk me into it. There's no doubt you like this movie more than me, but really what I'm wrestling with is the feelings of disappointment I had by the end of the film being worn down by a couple scenes. Again, we'll get to them here, or at least one big one here in a moment, but reconciling that with the fact that I laughed a lot throughout most of this movie and feel like I can actually recommend it to people just for those laughs and also for some of the performances. There are some really surprising turns here, not just from Schumer dramatically, but every time I've seen the trailer for this movie, probably 15 times, for whatever reason, yeah, I always I'm see with it. you. And every time I saw the trailer and then even seeing it again play out in the movie, I laughed at John Senna, the wrestler. So good. In the movie theater, being called Mark Wahlberg by another patron and saying, Mark Wahlberg weighs 150 pounds. I look like Mark Wahlberg ate Mark Wahlberg. The lines there are good. His conviction, his timing. Oh, yeah. His timing is legit. And that's one of those scenes that Apatow lets go on and on. If you think right. what you saw in the trailer spoiled it, that's maybe 25% of that scene. Yeah. And the reason is the couple that's behind them that gets maybe one line in the trailer, they become full players as this. And their interaction is just as funny, especially the guy's wife. I don't yeah. know if you noticed her, but the guy who's telling him to shut up, his wife is sitting next to him. She doesn't say anything the whole time, but just her faces, this is I know, going her on. Her faces are great. I, I mean, and, and that is the sort of decision that Apatow makes that pays off. Whereas we normally just get the gag that we see in the trailer and move on. Mm -hmm. We've got that. And it really works. And it's there's other things going on in that scene. There are we should talk about how it handles her drinking because there are just tiny character details within that comedy scene that hint at how this 
might be a bigger problem than certainly than she believes, but maybe even that her boyfriend believes. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff. When you let a comedy scene extend like that, you can do more than just get the gags within it. And actually, Santa has an even funnier scene shortly after this, which is one of those sex scenes that you reference. I think that's probably the funniest scene in the movie, actually. Beta carotene? There you go. Proteins. (laughs) It's all about proteins, Josh. But there are scenes like the one we get at the end of the film. This is the most egregious example of what I'm talking about when somehow he can maybe be a little bit too gratuitous and give his actors a chance to stretch out to a fault. Why is there a scene with Marv Albert in it? Everything about that scene. And unfortunately, that's about five minutes long. And it's five minutes too long because there's a sequence where all of a sudden it's just another opportunity to get a bunch of famous faces in there. And there are a lot of famous faces throughout this movie, little cameos here and there. LeBron James has a big role in it, actually, and is pretty good. He's not John Cena, but he's pretty good. But why is that scene there? It's there just so people can laugh at, oh, that's Marv Albert. But. It's not funny. Do they ever explain nothing. why Matthew Broderick is there? Is he no. there as himself? I'm assuming yeah. he's there as himself. Yeah, Chris Everett's there as yeah, himself. Right, right. Okay, and I Marv will give you that one. Himself. I, derail is a strong word. But that's where it hit me. That's where it really hit me that I felt like I had stopped getting the batting average that you were talking about in terms of the number of laughs it was delivering and feeling, too, like I was really invested in the Amy character as opposed to the movie needing her to hit a certain stride where all of a sudden she's on that road to redemption. Mm. I felt like once I started on that road to redemption and then I started to get scenes like that one, which if you are from a screenplay standpoint asking why it's there, there's no doubt that they put it there because they also want a scene where Bill Hader's sure, character exactly. has to realize that maybe he's not perfect either. The scripting but it doesn't, is very conventional. It's very conventional. It's very obvious. And it actually doesn't even serve that purpose. There's no reason watching that scene why we would come away thinking Bill Hader has learned anything about himself as a person after listening to that. It's just there to be a well, gag. Me, and it, yeah. it goes on way to too long. To me, it's there. It, it doesn't work. I'll give you that. But I will defend its existence. It's there because in that act, we don't have a lot of humor because this is where they've separated. Right. So inherently, you're not going to have the opportunity. So I think it's there to provide a little bit of humor. But And the one thing that does work for it is that he acknowledges we've just spent five to seven minutes and exactly what you said. He has not learned. I, I thought that was kind of witty that after all this, it's yeah. like it isn't that moment where he it's realizes acknowledging. He's like, you yeah. guys haven't been helpful, and we're kind of like, no, they haven't. It would be. Helpful. I don't know that the it would winking be more there, helpful if it, the winking they doesn't were funny. make up for it, though. It really doesn't. <laughs> it's a nice try, but unfortunately, that is a scene that I think could have been lost. And there's another scene too. Actually, it is pretty funny that Schumer uses in her stand-up. I've seen her perform stand-up before. She was part of the Oddball tour, I think it was called, that played in Tinley Park here in the suburbs last summer or the summer before, where she's talking about being at parties and people are sort of confessing their big sins. And they're always things like, you know, I eat the ice cream late at night when my that husband's in bed. You don't think yeah, that one works? No, it does. But you also at some point become hyper aware of the fact that that scene really is there to set up the punchline and almost nothing else. And I feel like, too, that gets to this larger issue of this Amy character. When she finally does have her epiphany and decide she's going to change as a person. It happens off screen. All we see is the aftermath. We see her finally dumping the bottles and doing some of those cliche things we see people always doing in movies when they start cleaning up their apartment and getting their life in order. We don't actually see the moment where we really understand why she makes that change. I'm going to disagree with that. And I think this is a key point of Schumer's comedy. I think the epiphanies happen within the angriness and the bitterness 
and the confession. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that moment where she sits down and thinks, oh, I've you know been a terrible person or I've made poor decisions. She's recognizing that and confessing that often as she's denying no, that's true. it. There's a great monologue here where she, and this is something she does often on her show too, where there are layers of denial that she peels back. And this one has to do with what she ate that day. Yeah. And she starts out by saying she just had some potato chips. I it's think. funny. And then she gets quieter Her and more items so come out. Oh, she, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but but that is also key. What, what she's doing there is she's learning about herself as she's confessing it to us. And so I think her moment of awareness does come in this film. It's just maybe in an unconventional way. And there is a funeral scene where she just she's great. tears into her sister, played by Brie Larson, who's very good here, probably giving the best dramatic performance in the film. It really does make us realize that pretty much everyone else here is a comic performer. Not that she does anything amazing. It's just a style. They get a scene and Amy Schumer's character tears into her and is really maybe at her worst Mm -hmm. in the film. I think that's her revelation. I think that's her epiphany moment. Yeah, but she still has a long way to go before she really changes. But that's part of it's all a process with her of realizing basically what I'm saying is that her moments of self-realization often don't come when she's doing something good, but they seem to come when she's behaving what she knows. And in that moment is confessing to some degree while also denying it when she's at her worst. Yeah. And that scene is, as you said, her at her worst and her instincts there are perfect, really. And you get that that character in that moment at her lowest point, because it's not a matter of her doing something wrong in terms of her personal life or even professionally. It's her at her weakest. It's her when she's at her most emotionally vulnerable. And so you do get that that character in that moment would try to a punish herself even more and b try to push away everybody else even more. That is one thing I really like throughout the movie is anytime someone starts to get angry with her or has some kind of an issue, she's instantly ready to just like, okay, now we just have to bail. part, right? Yeah, to like, bail. Like, mm-hmm. it, we're done now, and I'm going to leave, and maybe we'll talk in six months when this is better. But that instinct is right, and as I said, I think during that funeral scene, the aftermath of that, she's really right on there, and I agree that that's the start. There's no doubt that's the start of that character coming to terms with who she is. I think I also, though, found myself falling into some of those Apatow traps a little bit when we get to the end of the film, not a spoiler, but there's another chase scene or another deadline sort of scene yeah, that for no reason whatsoever. And if you think all. about it, Apatow's always done this. Like, I well, love... romantic comedies have done oh, this forever. And, certainly. And, and you're it's, right. it's not like they came together, the David Wayne film, where they're doing it to spoof it exactly. at all. I mean, no. they're all in on this. I've got to make the deadline, and there's yeah. really no reason. He's always for done it. that, though. Yeah. It's in The 40 Year Old Virgin where he's riding a bike. And I love almost everything about that movie except for how that end is played out. This is 40, does something similar. I'm sure there are other examples. And then we get it here. For really no reason. There's no explanation for why that character would be in that moment in such a race to get where she goes. The movie has to come up with a bunch of contrivances just to sort of up the ante on some kind of tension that really doesn't exist anyway because we don't know where she's going or why. It's just a bizarre choice. Yeah, it, it really is. And I don't know. It would be interesting to find out if that was in Schumer's script. You know, as we're talking about how this movie was, how their collaboration yeah. went, you know, is this a first time screenwriter relying on conventions to provide that sort of structure that they can riff on? Mm-hmm. Or was this something, as you said, if it's an Apatow trait that he imposed, that would be interesting to find out. I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on Schumer as a feminist figure because it's definitely a thread to her show. And I think it carries over here in some interesting 
ways because she's very, at least this character and often the ones she plays on her show, very confused feminist figures. And I don't mean confused like they've got it wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a figuring out of what it means to be feminist in today's day and age when that term means something to one woman, different to another woman, different to this guy. And I like the honesty of her having this impulse of what that might mean to her, but not quite sure how it looks or how to enact it in today's world with yeah. all of these conflicting philosophies. And the film handles it really nicely in just some asides. The one bit that I think it comes out most interestingly is the through line with the cheerleaders. Because he's a sports doctor, there are scenes involving cheerleaders that he knows. He says, well, sometimes they get injured and I treat them too. And her initial reaction is... Anti-cheerleader. Yeah, they're bimbos. And and yeah, so you get this stereotypical derision of the cheerleader. But the way the movie handles that and follows through, it's just a little thing, but I think it is representative of how I love the way she brings feminist concerns into her comedy. Maybe doesn't champion anything, maybe doesn't answer anything for sure, but at least makes it this crucial integral part of what she does. I agree completely. And I think that's what I love about the show so much. And I think that's what I love about some good portions of this movie is her wrestling with that and the fact that she's very open about wanting to confront feminist issues. She uses that word. It's not like it isn't something that isn't in her mind. At the same time, recognizing that she might not always be the perfect role model for that or even knowing what the perfect role model is. She's always kind of fighting her inner demons there. And I like that. I really do appreciate that. And I think it does come through in this movie. I wish Maybe it came through a little bit more, I guess. Trainwreck is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, we all know Tom Cruise is in the top 1% of all naval aviators. <laughs> the best of the best. But is that good enough for the actor to win a death match against himself? The Film Spotting poll is next. Stay with us. I've been working here. Monday it'll be a year. And I can't recall the day when I didn't want to decide. Welcome to the Zolve Podcast, episode 39, the mostly butts, little bit of wang edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. No film spotters, there's nothing wrong with your podcast feed or your radio dial. This is Film Spotting, and that was friend of the show, Scott Tobias, with the intro to the latest and very sadly last edition of the Dissolve Podcast. 
the day after we recorded our last show, Josh, we got the very sudden and surprising news. The world got the very sudden and surprising news that The Dissolve, really the essential Chicago-based movie site that was founded by former AV Club staffers Scott, Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, among other fine writers and contributors, was closing up shop. Yeah, they had a marvelous two-year run that they were at it. And I think the the way I would describe what they did at The Dissolve was enlightenedly obsessive. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would burrow into one film, uh, whatever it was, they would just dig so deep into it and bring something out about it that you hadn't thought about before. So complete shame. I mean, for the movie, the online movie landscape to lose anything is always is always sad. But a resource like this uh, and a place like that, and especially here in Chicago, that, that one does hit deep. It really does. And just a quick sidebar with Scott being a guy who has come on the show Pretty consistently over the past eight years or so, I want to say 2007 was the first time he was on as a guest host. He really was beneficial to the show just in terms of encouraging us. I think about back in, actually it would have been maybe 2006 when we've been on for only about a year. And my co-host at the time, now one of our producers, Sam Van Halgren, we were doing the show and we reached out to Scott because we read his stuff on the AV Club and we thought he was great. Of course, he was one of those critics that we looked up to. And I think Sam was taking a week off or he had something going on and we thought, well, let's get a guest host. That'd be pretty amazing if we could get Scott Tobias. So we tried and he didn't get back to us for a long time. And we thought, well, he's just a really busy guy and he's way too important for us and he doesn't need to get back to us. When he finally did, he was really apologetic and we were able to correspond a little bit. And then completely out of the blue and certainly unsolicited, one day he wrote on the AV Club, I think it was a blog, he wrote a little article and he praised our show. And just seeing a critic like that who we really respected do that for us. Sure. And validate us. That's what it was. It was incredibly validating. And The Dissolve was such a good film site. And now that it's gone, that's, of course, the bad news. The only little bit of good news that we have. And of course, it's nowhere near as good as the bad is bad. But we are going to have a little Dissolve in residency on film spotting over the next two weeks. Scott, Keith, and Tasha have agreed to do a takeover here on the show. So next week, They're looking at possibly Irrational Man, the new Woody Allen film with Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone, or they might talk about Southpaw, the new film starring Jake Gyllenhaal. That's going to be a Scott and Keith show. And then the week after that, Tasha and Scott are going to host. So we're really excited about it. Yeah. And listeners will be familiar with Tasha. She's been on with me a couple times lately. That You know, that's a podcast that was in my rotation, too, the Dissolves podcast. And I was able to guest on there once, did a little talking about uh, action films and Mad Max. So uh, that's too bad that that's gone too. Well, somehow all those appearances of Scott and Tasha and even Keith a few years ago haven't been enough to clue you into exactly what the dissolve is. If you were somehow not familiar, well, you're the reason they're gone. So I hope you feel good about it. (laughs) That's cruel. (laughs) It is cruel. We are not really blaming you. But the archive, the whole site, is still up if you do want to peruse it as obsessively as they wrote about cinema. We do certainly encourage you to take that opportunity if you haven't already. Gentlemen, you are the top 1% of all naval aviators. The elite. Best of the best. We'll make it better. Oh man, just listening to that scene brings me back to fourth grade and it gets me, it gets me going, Josh. It gives me some goosebumps. Wow. That is Top Gun. And Josh, you are, of course, famously on record as having somehow made it through American boyhood in the 1980s, no less, without seeing 
feel the dreams. And yes, there you go. I've brought it up again. I didn't even get the electro shock. Still haven't you had seen rigged. it. No, Still and of course you haven't. Dislike Little League. <laughs> you don't have to care about Little League to care about Field of really? Dreams. But that's not even the most egregious oversight from the 80s. You haven't seen Top Gun either, have you? No, I've seen Top what? Gun. What? I thought you hadn't. Yeah, I've seen. How could you not see Top Gun? I mean, you know, you think everyone's seen Vision Quest, which you probably had to actually go to the video store and no, rent. No, no. It was on TV all the time. What? It was on HBO well, all the time. Top Gun was everywhere. So I yes. saw it. Um, I have nothing for you here. Okay, I mean, that's it, fine. It, it was certainly no goosebumps. I don't remember it really affecting my life one way or the other. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, unlike got, me. We've got to watch that again. I mean, should we, we do, do a sacred cow on that? I think we should. Okay. I think we should. Unlike me. I need you, to form an opinion on it. You obviously never dreamed of being in the Air Force or Navy. No, no. Okay, I had that dream once. Okay. So Top Gun was right Did in you my wheelhouse. Did you before Top Gun? I did. Oh, so oh, it well, just made it stronger. Okay, there you yeah, go. Of course. <laughs> Why are we talking about Top Gun? Well, we'll tell you. In a couple weeks, we or some combination of those dissolve hosts will be discussing the latest humble effort from Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. And in considering a few cruise related poll questions, we did consider a couple different options. We settled on a classic cruise deathmatch. Forget Batman v. Superman, we have Cruise v. Cruise. 80s versus, has to be 90s Cruise, right? I think it's 92. This Rob Reiner directed Isn't it film. 92? We're giving you this death match. You can only pick one, Top Gun, or A Few Good Men. You can only watch one of them ever again. The other one's going to be destroyed. So the movie's not the Tom Cruise performance. Exactly. Okay. We're going with the movie. All right. Does it matter, though, if it's performance? Yes, it matters hugely. <laughs> well, it he either, was a much he, younger, more volatile actor back in his Maverick days. I don't know. He was more mature when he played right. in A Few Good Men. Yeah. And it's a more mature role. I don't know that I it mean, makes either way, it I'm going to have movie. to watch Top Gun before I vote, clearly. <laughs> I would love that. If this poll question makes you watch, you Top, watch Gun Top Gun again, then yeah, we've done our job here. So Sacred Cow Review, maybe. I don't know if I'm going to watch it for a poll question. I like A Few Good Men. It's a very watchable film. And it's a very rewatchable <laughs> film. I've never had a particularly strong affection for it, though. Okay. So no I'm goose, going classic No goosebumps. Cruise. No goosebumps at all. Not even when Nicholson I mean, is uh, telling you you is. can't handle the truth? You I mean, don't get a little prickly there? Maybe. It's a good moment, but... All right. But that's but, not Cruise, no. so... Okay. Yeah, and it's no Top Gun. So you know where I'm voting. We want to know where you're voting. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave us some feedback, of course, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We would be remiss if we didn't take a moment here on the show to acknowledge the passing of Omar Sharif this past week, the star of Lawrence of Arabia, the star of Dr. Shivago, the film that regular listeners will know came up. I don't know. How long ago was that? We did our top five blind spots at least six months ago, maybe even yeah, that a year ago. Right. No, it was this year. I think. Okay. It was this year. We were revealing the top five to 10 movies we were most embarrassed to admit we'd never seen or felt like they were just gems, movies that... A lot of people regard as classics that we had neglected to see. Dr. Shivago was on my list. And despite the protests from many listeners saying, this is absolutely one of those films you guys have to break down and see. It's really a joke that you've gone this much of your lives and not seen Dr. Shivago. We've been a little bit... We collectively to, shrugged our shoulders. Yeah, and we enjoyed it. We enjoyed shrugging our shoulders at Dr. Shivago. Well, we've been pestered 
politely reminded, maybe I should say, Christopher. by Christopher from Lexington, Kentucky, yeah. repeatedly. And I think if he'd maybe sent 10 fewer emails, we might have been it's true. more likely to watch it. At some it. point, you start to feel like you're getting badgered, and then you just you just want to keep, get give it back to him. You get, yeah, you get stubborn. But really, I mean, how long after hearing about the news of Sharif's passing did you think it's now we, we got to do it? Not very well. Long. You, you don't want to do it still. <laughs> no, I do want to do it. I'm the one who put it on my list. I've always wanted to do it, but I'm just looking at my upcoming schedule and realizing that it hasn't gotten any shorter. It hasn't gotten any easier. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to fit in that epic movie, but you may have a plan. Well, I'm thinking it's on the way is what I've got to tell you. I, I went to Netflix, Netflix, put it at the Blu-rays on the way. So I'm thinking we have you and Sarah over. Mm-hmm. Debbie's never seen it either. We'll put in the eight and a half hours. Is that what it is? I think so. Okay. Maybe we'll break it up over two nights. Intermission. And we'll, I was going to say get it over with. We'll enjoy the film. Yes, <laughs> we that... probably will. Okay. I th- From what I hear, we will. Although I'm not encouraged by the handful of people who email us and say, you're not really missing much. We've had some supporters. There's no doubt about that. Maybe even more supporters than we've had people saying that we're idiots for not watching it. But I think that's the only way it's going to happen. Okay. You guys broke this news to me earlier tonight that you were thinking about having a little get together. And I think if I can work it into my schedule as a night out with my wife, a night of fun, and we make it. A movie night as yeah. well. We do a little bit of work at the same time, mix some business and pleasure, Josh. I think that's the only way it's going to happen. So I'm in. All right. We'll set the date. We'll watch Dr. Zhivago. I can't wait. Good. Well, it's back to funny business after the break with our all-time favorite comedy ensembles. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. This is how you make yourself vanish into nothing. And this is how you make yourself worthy of the love that she gave to you. Back when you didn't know the beautiful thing And this is how you make yourself call your mother And this is how you make yourself closer to your brother Remember him back when he was small enough to help you sing You thought God was an architect Now you know he's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow And everything you built, it's all for show, goes up in flames In 24 frames Quick interruption here just to say thank you to some of our new film spotting donors and also to highlight our featured artists this week. One of my favorites, just a performer I'm pretty obsessed with at this point, Jason Isbell from his brand new album, Something More Than Free. Didn't you go see him recently? I did. He was here in Chicago. Again, I lose track of time, but four to six months ago, great, great show. He has upcoming tour dates in New Haven, Connecticut, Brooklyn, and at the Newport Folk Festival. More information at jasonisbell.com. Again, can't recommend his stuff highly enough. A little bit of an apology here. We're going to have another apology here in a moment, and we'll have some fun with it. But the P.O. Box, we have a film spotting P.O. Box, and some people choose to send us things or write in certain things. Sometimes they send us checks because they are donating to the show and they just prefer to use that method over PayPal. And it's been, 
oh man, at least a month since I got these and we just haven't really been able to fit them into the show. I overlooked them for a while. So I want to say I'm sorry to some of these listeners who wrote us a nice card or sent us a letter and sent us a check. And one of those guys is Tom in Gross Point Blank, Michigan, who said, thanks for turning me on to movies like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, The Act of Killing, and Frank. Enjoy the reviews. They are civil, thoughtful, and interesting. I'm a first-time donor and hopefully will remember to pay the dealer from time to time in the future. Thank you, Tom. We also have a new Bucka Show donor. He is Thomas in Simpsonville, South Carolina. A new $5 a month donor. Josh, I'm going to let you do the honors here. Anton? That would be Anton from Vallenby, Sweden. That's right. Vallenby in Sweden, suburban district in the western part of Stockholm. There you go. And two more people who sent us letters in the mail. Mark in Chicago and Chris Carrotton in Bakersfield, California. They sent us a check. They just gave us the money up front. They said, here's your $5 a month for a whole year. And we're very, very appreciative as we are appreciative of all of our donors every week. Now, that brings us to the other apology. Last week on the show, we had some fun with an email that we got that came as part of a donation that took you and me to task for a certain phrase. Do you remember the phrase? No, Josh? we're not. Don't say it. I know we can't say it. Because I think we're okay so far in the show. We'll be able to double the donation, which was a sizable one to begin with. If we can go eight shows, I think that was the deal. Yeah. Eight shows without using this phrase. Now I know why we asked the Dissolve to host the next two <laughs> That's weeks. That's it. Those count. Those have oh, to count, totally. right? And Scott and Keith and Tasha, they never say no, anything No, of course, they, like they're this. much too sophisticated oh, yeah. and cultured and smart to do that. But we got this email this week from Sam in Sydney, who says, not sure where the mix-up came from, but that was my donation and note about, insert phrase here, Poor John W. from New Zealand shouldn't have to take the blame for my pedantic nagging, nor should he be held accountable for the double donation should you successfully refrain for two months. Thanks for a great show and for having fun with the note in the spirit in which it was intended. So I did attribute that <laughs> after, whole thing after all that to John in New Zealand. It turns out the pedantic <laughs> listener John. was Sam in Sydney. So apologies to John. I don't think he's heard the show yet because he did not write in saying, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but that email might be coming. So, Sam, thank you for being honest and pointing that out. We did get some people, though, Josh, who came to our defense. One of those was Kevin Tyrell from Melrose, Massachusetts. I heard the trouncing that Josh recently got for his use of the term insert phrase here. Well, Film Spotting is not the only podcast I listen to. I am also an avid listener of Grammar Girl, a.k.a. Mignon Fogarty, at the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. She recently tackled the issue of a insert phrase here, and I'm including a link to the full transcript. Be forewarned that the article gets into some serious grammar geek details, such as rebracketing, infixing, and semantic scope. That's usually uh, what we're talking about, though, right after the show. Yeah, all the time. In the piece, a professional linguist, Sayel Graves, explains the reason some English speakers will use the phrase, even though you will almost never see it in a written format. In a nutshell, while it's not grammatically correct, there are well-researched and fascinating reasons why some people have adopted the phrase. With this academic support behind him, I hope Josh will feel at least slightly vindicated for being a member of the, insert phrase here, cohort. Thanks for taking my podcast listening experience to a whole insert phrase here level that was close it was really that was close. so close you almost because it's it. so natural to me i know <laughs> hey and if listeners want to hear the phrase they're going to have to go back to show 545 i think what you want to say is eat it sam eat it but i'm still not going to use the phrase there's cash involved you thought god was an architect now you Oh, for 
Film spotting listeners, I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We're the hosts of Sound Opinions, a show where we discuss our thoughts and ideas about music of the past and present. We're taking a minute to let you know about our big outdoor screening of Cameron Crowe's rock and roll classic, Almost Famous. Also, do we mention it's free? Yes, it is free. Come on out July 28th at Millennium Park in Chicago and watch one of the greatest films ever made about music. You can find out more information on soundopinions.org. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. We continue our summer top five rewind this week with our top five comedy ensembles. This is a list we originally assembled way back in March 2012. Looking at that show, Josh, I'm guessing that the top five was not a tie-in with Pickpocket. The third film in our Robert Brisson marathon, Laugh Riot, the pickpocket was, of course. Boy, those actors, though, they would have been great at deadpan humor, oh, right? Brisson's the actors. deadest pan of all time. <laughs> what a show that was. Yeah. I mean, what, what a packed pack show for one thing. Here we are not even doing half a show. We're begging out of the top five. Look back at this one. I know. We've got Pickpocket, the top five, and... We also did the main review of Wanderlust. Of course, a movie that starred Paul Rudd, Jennifer Aniston, David Wayne, the writer and director of that film, and a filmmaker we're proud to call a friend of the show, and a filmmaker who often partners with a regular ensemble, including many members of MTV's The State. For you youngsters out there, The State was a sketch comedy group from the early 90s, of which Wayne was an original member. As we look at this top five... I don't want to provide any disclaimers. I don't want to provide any apologies. It's not that I'm embarrassed by my picks, but you went deep with a couple of your choices, so I'm definitely giving you the edge. Well, thank you. But in retrospect, it was March 2012. You had just joined the show full-time <laughs> a couple of months prior. It's possible that you were still just trying to make a good impression. Yeah, clearly, look at my list since. Just gotten lazier. Every week, lazier and lazier to right. the point that I don't even do them anymore. Less and less inspired. <laughs> For sure. My motto. (laughs) Stick around after our picks. We will share some listener feedback in response to our top five. They are all of a certain note. We start, though, with a clip from a film made by an ensemble so beloved, it's possible you won't even bother listening to the segment when you learn that they somehow didn't make either of our lists. We apologize in advance. You silly sod. You guys all worked up. Well, that's no ordinary rabbit. That's the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on. You tit! I saw my arm and I was so scared. Look, that rabbit's got a vicious street a mile wide. It's a killer. Get stuck. He'll do you a treat, mate. Oh, you yeah? manky Scots git. I'm warning you. What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge, sharp... He can leap about... Look at the bones! Josh, I don't know your list, you don't know my list, but I do know that the ensemble responsible for the scene we all just heard, Monty Python and Monty Python's Holy Grail, is not going to make our list. So I guess I'm giving you a quick forum to apologize for that. <laughs> for shame, for yes, shame. I we're shaming hear ourselves yes, already. This was really hard to do, and so many great ensembles are going to be left off, I got to tell you. Yeah, they are. But you know what? I will say this about Monty Python. I like all those films very funny, but I've also been on record before as saying that I need to watch all of them again. It was so long ago that I watched those films that I just don't feel like I really know them. I also don't feel like I really fully appreciated them then. So if anything, doing this list was a reminder to me that I need to go back and rewatch some Monty Python films. So at least something good came from it. But Josh, what's your number five? Well, I felt a little bit like this was a math assignment too, because we had to add on with our three people who have done more than two films and it got kind of complicated. So hopefully my math is right as well. (laughs) But I'm starting off with Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder, and Madeline Kahn. 
and specifically for Young Frankenstein, that's my favorite of their films together. It's, of course, Brooks' variation on the horror classic. We have Wilder as Victor Frankenstein's grandson and Khan as his diva of a fiancé. What I love about this trio is that Wilder and Khan can go from quiet to really big quickly in terms of their comic style. And so can Brooks, both as a performer and as a director. That's kind of his style, too. So it's fun to watch them together and wait and see which one is going to explode. You, you never quite know. You're kind of on edge when they're on the screen together. Now, that being said, in Young Frankenstein, I think one of their best scenes together is uh, a quiet one, actually. It's when Wilder and Khan are having this goodbye scene at the train station, and he longs to touch her. She's protective of her hair and lipstick and doesn't want him getting close, even as she's professing her love for him. And she even ducks his air kiss at one point. Oh, my sweet darling. Oh, my dearest love. I'll count the hours that you're away. Oh, darling, so alive. Not on the lips. What? I'm going to that party at Nana and Nikki's later. I don't want to smear my lipstick. Oh. You understand. Of course. All aboard! Oh, dear. Well, I guess this is it. Freddy, darling. Well, how can I say in a few minutes what it's taken me a lifetime to understand? Won't you try? All right. You've got it, mister. I just love everything going on in that scene. And Khan in this film, of course, gets at the end to be the clingy bride of Frankenstein, complete with the stripe in her hair. Every scene in this movie works, especially those where these three are working together. It's a great pick and a great ensemble. I'm so glad it made your list. And you're right, we did kind of set up this arbitrary criteria, but you had to define an ensemble a little bit. So we said it has to be at least three people who've worked together. Could be a director, writer, actor, actress, whatever. But three people who've worked together at least twice. And often I tried to consider them working together, hopefully more than that, at least three times to really get the sense that they do love to work together and they do it repeatedly. And I'm going to call this my Nobody F's with the Jesus memorial list in reference to John Turturro, John Goodman, and the Cone Brothers, who have worked together three times. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? The film, I'm, of course, referencing The Big Lebowski and also Barton Fink. Something about the Cone Brothers, though, maybe it's just because I put them on this separate pedestal. I revere them so much and love their films so much. It just didn't seem like they were right for this list of comedy ensembles, though you can make the case. So I'm putting them out there as my memorial pick. You know what it was for me, and I didn't include them either, we might as well say at this point, is because Turturro and Goodman, as much as I love their bits in those films, they're not what I love the most about the Cohen films. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and so I just felt that I couldn't put them on them in this category, at least. Well, I can't wait to see all the emails we'll get, all the... <laughs> All the grief we're going to take for leaving off Monty Python, but me including as my number five, the View Askewniverse. That's right. Kevin Smith, Jason Mewes, Scott Mosier, Brian O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon. You can throw Joey Lauren Adams in there as well. I mean, come on. This ensemble works together so much. And they've created their own unique world that it's got its own name. And, of course, I am referencing the films of Kevin Smith. I'm not a huge fan of Dogma. Mallrats has its moments. But both the Clerks films, Chasing Amy... Jay and Silent Bob. I'm a big fan of all four of them. I think they're very funny. Watching Randall argue about Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings and Clerks 2 will always be hilarious to me. And then you can go to even a movie like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and the great scene with Damon and Affleck where they're shooting Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season. So, action, Gus, or? Jesus, Ben, I said I'm busy. Busy. <clears throat> yeah, I do remember the class. But frankly, I found it rather elementary. I remember that class. It was just between recess and lunch. Are we going to have a problem? Again? 
I was still just hoping you might be able to give me a little insight into the southern colonies. See, Wood says... What'd I say? What did I tell you? You'd be back in here regurgitating Gordon Wood. But you forgot about Vickers. No, I just read Vickers, so I'm up on inherited wealth hunting. But you're no longer the angry, brilliant young mind you once were just itching to adventure frustrations. Oh, you stopped hitting the books with a vengeance. And now I've read sh you haven't even heard about yet. Face facts, my friend. You're just no longer that good. Will hunting. <laughs> There's just something about Ben Affleck saying there in that scene. So, action Gus, because Gus Van Zandt's back to make the sequel and he's counting money. He's like, yeah, whatever. Can't you see I'm busy? I love that scene. I think that movie's really funny. I think Kevin Smith deserves some recognition here, even though I know I'm going to get some grief for it. It's a definite brand. They've done a lot together. And yeah, there's some good moments in there. I guess for me, none of those films do I really love. Really? So yeah, it would be hard for me to put okay. them on this list. I went way back for my number four and chose George Cougar, Cary Grant, and Katherine Hepburn. I'm going to talk mostly about Holiday. They also made Sylvia Scarlet and the Philadelphia Story together. But I basically chose Holiday because it's freshest in my memory, so I can recall it better. Grant here is a rising, if free-spirited businessman who's about to marry the daughter of a financing tycoon. Then he meets his fiancée's sister, and this is the black sheep of the family, played by Hepburn. And he realizes her irreverent attitude towards business and money is actually a closer match to his. What Cougar did for these two is kind of create a space where they were clearly the best matched compared to everyone else on the screen. And the best romantic comedies really did this for their star couple. Here we see that they're a match in terms of wit, vitality, and pure joy. There's a running gag in this film where Grant will do these impromptu acrobatics. We, we don't ever really know why, but it's just this expression of his free-spiritedness and his joy. And there's a great scene where Hepburn just having met him, I believe, that day, joins in with him and they kind of do this circus act and you can kind of just see them clicking here. They have that click that so many modern romantic comedies are missing. At one point in this film, Hepburn's Linda says something like, I'm alive when Grant's Johnny is around. That's kind of how she describes it. And really this whole film, which is a good movie, I like it, but it mostly comes alive when they're on screen together. Yeah, they're a great pairing and it's a fantastic pick. Probably better than my number four, but I'm sticking with it here when Michael Winterbottom isn't making heavy movies like A Summer in Genoa and Killer Inside Me and A Mighty Heart. He takes time for really funny comedies with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, and they're so funny together that a movie that's basically just filmed episodes of them eating meals and talking and driving is hysterical, and that was last year's film, The Trip. Before we had Bryden and Coogan doing their dueling Michael Caines, we saw them in Tristram Shandy discussing the merits of Bryden's not-white teeth. They're just such a great mismatch pair that obviously Michael Winterbottom knows how to get the best out of. Well, broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are right. so wrong. That's and you can that's look that's at my that's live video that's for that's proof that's because that's, I, that's the do, very thing I don't do. What, I do, say do, that he do, used to talk do, like that. Do you, Michael Caine? Okay. I say Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s, right? But that has changed. And I say that over the years, Michael's voice has come down several octaves. Let me finish. And all of the cigars and the brandy don't let me finish can now be heard. Okay. In the, I've not finished in the back of the voice and the voice okay. now. Will, I've still not finished the voice. Because you're panicking. I've, yeah, no, because you look stop. like you're about to bloody talk. Let me finish. Right, so, Michael Cates' voice now. 
in the Batman movies and in Harry Brown. I can't go fast because Michael Caine talks very, very slowly. That's a good one. I wish I had thought of that one. I probably would have if I had seen the trip, which I missed. Oh, yeah. But I love Tristram Shandy. And yeah, that, that's. And 24 Hour Party People, I should yep. mention, is the third film that those three have done together, which is my favorite film of the bunch. So, yeah, I like that pick a lot. For number three, I picked Christopher Guest and Company. They did excellent work for about three films in a row and then came for your consideration, which was their last picture together. And. They had such a great run, though, before that, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Win. And think of all the faces that he gathered for these films. Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, Bob Balaban, John Michael Higgins, Eugene Levy. There are others who are kind of sprinkled in one or two of these, but I think those might be in all of them, I believe. I especially love how he uses Eugene Levy in all these films. I think A Mighty Wind might be the high point. I don't know. It's so hard to you know debate which one is the best. But I like that one because it's the one with the most pathos, I felt, especially when it came to Levy's character. He's the male half of this once popular Sonny and Cher type duo. And it kind of brought this Christopher Guest improvisational feel to a different level and added a little bit of motion to it. Christopher Guest is a great pick for our top five comedy ensembles. You're listening to Film Spotting. I think we'll have a little bit more on Christopher Guest and Friends in a moment. But first, my number three goes back to our deathmatch question, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd versus Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I did go with Apatow there in that poll and... I like him enough that he's number three here in this top five. Of course, that trio made Knocked Up together, also the 40-year-old virgin. And then I guess if you cheat a little bit and you start applying the fact that Apatow is also a producer who makes so many films, and he's got this Apatow gang where he's producing the films for Adam McKay, and you've got Will Ferrell in Ricky Bobby and also Anchorman along with Paul Rudd as well. It's tough because I love Shaun of the Dead and I really like Hot Fuzz. That Edgar Wright group is a brilliant trio, but Knocked Up, and The 40-Year-Old Virgin are movies that I laughed as hard at as I've laughed at any movie we reviewed over seven years here on this show. And when you do add in those other elements, the other parts of that Apatow gang, Superbad is another film I really appreciated. Apatow does get the edge, for better or worse. And as I touched on earlier, some listeners would say worse. We've always really liked Apatow's films here on the show. I thought Funny People was good as well, which was another film he directed. And Yes, there are movies like Pineapple Express, which I didn't like at all, and Year One and Drillbit Taylor along the way. But then you also get Bridesmaids and you get Forgetting Sarah Marshall that Apatow produces. So that gang is one that you know you're not necessarily going to get a hit out of every time, but maybe three quarters of the time, it's going to be some really funny stuff. They definitely would win for largest ensemble, there you I go. think, when you include him as a producer. Yeah, that was an honorable mention for me. I, I thought about including them for sure. At number two, though, instead, I went with Wes Anderson, Bill Murray, and Owen Wilson. I'm doing some fuzzy math maybe number here. Number two? Number two. You shocked me, Josh Larson. You thought I can't that would wait. Be, you thought that would be one. Yeah, I did. This was, this was hard, but I went with number two, including, of course, Wilson as the screenwriter, too, for Anderson. He partners with him in that capacity a lot. Now, I think Murray and Wilson have been involved in every one of Anderson's films except Bottle Rocket, which Murray wasn't in. In my mind, that's just a fantastic track record. And I think Rushmore in particular is the best coming-of-age movie I've seen. And one of the reasons is because it's not only a coming-of-age movie for Jason Schwartzman's teen, but also for Murray's middle-aged Herman Bloom. It makes it a coming-of-age story for him, too. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. The secret? I don't know. I 
think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Shotgun. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, Danny. Hey, good. Get in the back. I said mm. shotgun. Get in the back, Donnie. And Anderson and Wilson wrote this part of Herman Balloon that it's hard to realize now because Murray has mined this in good and different ways since, but it really unearthed the melancholia that was always a part of Murray's persona, but here they kind of set it free and it really burst out there in the perfect sort of film. I'm going to probably have to put Rushmore now in my personal pantheon and not allow it to be. Yeah. I, I'm surprised it's been. That's I don't the know penalty how many, box. Oh, we call it the, the penalty, penalty box. box. Okay. It, it, it's put aside and you can't touch it for six months or so. It's been maybe almost 10 shows and I haven't had it on a top five. <laughs> so I was proud of myself for that. Yeah, well done. It's a great pick. My number two is your number three. I'm going with Christopher Guest and you said it. Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, Bob Balaban and crew. I actually had them lower on my list. They were definitely in the top five, but I had them down a little bit because I thought Mighty Win was okay. I didn't love it. I really kind of hated for your consideration, which it sounds like you did as well. But I think Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show are classics. And this truly is an ensemble. It's not just people who occasionally work together, but a troupe. I could watch them on stage. I could watch them on screen. I actually was thinking today that I would love to see this troupe get something like The Five Obstructions, the Lars von Trier film where he gives a director five different challenges, remake the same movie five different times. I would love to see this troupe get a five obstructions challenge like that. Like get a story, <laughs> just give them some resources and say, give me the same film or give me the same storyline, but five different ways. Just use your creativity, come at it however you want to do it. And you know, they're all so versatile and so talented that they'd be five wildly different productions, but all probably hilarious. They probably fit the definition for this top five, the best actually. Yeah, that's a good point. That brings us to our number ones. For number one, Yes, taking the place of Rushmore and the Anderson Group is director Billy Wilder, star Jack Lemmon, and writer IAL Diamond. Wow. I had to include them because simply for Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. I realize The Apartment is in the Pantheon. I don't know how that works with the rules. It's fine. I'll talk more about Some Like It Hot to make this legal. Okay. But with those two films... Those alone are so great that this had to put them on the top. They also did films like The Fortune Cookie, Irma La Douce, Avanti. What I like about these three when they're working together is that they're not afraid of sadness, even when they're working mostly in comedy. The Apartment, of course, really explores this. The Apartment is my favorite of their films. But I think it's an undercurrent, too, in Some Like It Hot. This is where Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis play a pair of speakeasy musicians in Prohibition-era Chicago. They witness the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, so they have to go on the run. The killers are on their tail. And they disguise themselves, of course, why not, as women, and join an all-female jazz band who has been hired to play at this Tony Florida hotel. So amidst all this zaniness that's going on with that setup, they still make room in this film to acknowledge what it's like for a woman to be objectified by men. Mm -hmm. One of the running jokes is that Lemon's character just finds it utterly exhausting. You know, I play tennis, eh? But you're a girl, thank goodness. That's why I joined this band. Safety first. Anything to get away from those bums. Yeah. You don't know what they're like. You fall for them. You really love them. You think this is going to be the biggest thing since the Graf Zeppelin. The next thing you know... They're borrowing money from you. They're spending it on other dames and betting on horses. You don't say. Then one morning you wake up, the guy's gone, the saxophone's gone. All that's left behind is a pair of old socks and a tube of toothpaste, all squeezed out. So you pull yourself together. You go on to the next job, the next saxophone player. It's the same thing all over again. You see, 
See what I mean? Not very bright. And, of course, Some Like It Hot also has Marilyn Monroe there to amplify this theme. And it's one of her best roles as Sugar. She's this romantically doomed ukulele player whose jello-like qualities, that's how Lemon famously put it, also is something of a curse. So that plays into the theme, too. And I had to go with this group simply on the strength of the apartment in Some Like It Hot. Yeah, this is tough because... I love Billy Wilder, and I love Jack Lemmon, and I love those films you mentioned. And I think what's going to happen as we start to see the emails come in is I'm going to be reminded of picks like that that I didn't consider at all, really probably for no other good reason than I didn't think of many cases where there was a director and a writer and an actor working together. It was usually a director and an ensemble of actors. And this one with the writer is the one that separated this one maybe a little bit for me, where somehow I just didn't include them. But you're right, Billy Wilder throughout his career really had two main collaborators so anytime he was working with repeat actors technically could qualify for this list so that's a great pick and like i said i'm sure we're going to get a lot more that i just completely overlooked my number one though i picked it just for you josh and you let me down going with wes anderson as your number two but wes along with owen wilson luke wilson jason schwartzman and bill murray I have said this before. I failed to appreciate Steve Zissou. I do put that on me because everyone I know seems to like it. That's my failure that I didn't appreciate it. And I had a mixed reaction to the Darjeeling Limited, but there are still moments of brilliance there, as there are as well in the fantastic Mr. Fox. But even if you put all three of those movies aside, this is the group that still gave us Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and the Royal Tenenbaums. And I'm not sure if it's a reflection on the ensemble, but one of the things that I think of, of course, as I think many do when they think of Wes Anderson, is his use of popular music. Which director uses popular music better in his films? I actually caught some of the Royal Tenenbaums a few nights ago on TV, and I spent like two hours the next day just on Spotify looking up tracks, refreshing my memory, listening to Needle in the Hay, and She Smiled Sweetly, and all these great tracks from his movies that really are so good and that he really exposed me to. A lot of them I had never heard before. It's not Wes Anderson's fault in the end, that so many people over the past decade or so have tried to become Wes Anderson. He's become kind of a punchline. He's become a go-to for critics when they're trying to criticize other films to say, well, they're just trying to be like Wes Anderson. And I feel like almost some of that has started to rub off on him a little bit and probably not deservingly. It's my number one, Wes Anderson and company. I love not only that you picked that, but that you mentioned the music. Because when I actually first thought of Anderson's group as an ensemble, I was going to come at it from the angle, and maybe this would be stretching things like I did with the screenwriter for IAL Diamond, of Mark Mothersbaugh, who has composed a lot of his score. And I was thinking of including Murray Anderson and Mothersbaugh as the trio because that is so crucial to the consistent comic and emotional tone that all of his films have. So I can't argue with that number one at all. Well, you know what? You just came up with a great top five topic for a future show, and it's that director-composer collaboration. I like it. I think... That could be very good. I know a lot of our listeners who don't feel like we give enough love to the musical choices of films and to scores would probably appreciate that one. So we'll put that down on the list for a future show. Top five director-composer idea, still not one we've got to, Josh, but it remains a sound one. Hopefully at some point we will. Wilder, there in your top five again, didn't you recently go to the Wilder well when we revisited 
a top five, the one with Michael Phillips. I think it was actor-director pairing. Actor-director yeah. pairing. So See, I'm I supposed just... to be the Wilder guy. I taught a class on <laughs> yeah, Billy Wilder, and here you are well, going other, to other people Wilder. can like him too. And I, guess. I think that's just more evidence that I got lazier and lazier. <laughs> so there you go. You know what? It's like me with Field of Dreams back to back two weeks when you're picking from. Three-plus years, sometimes things just happen that way. Let's get to some feedback, though. We acknowledged at the beginning and near the end of that top five a pretty glaring omission. Not just Monty Python, but really maybe the most revered comedy ensemble in all of cinema history. And we heard about that from our listeners, including Mike Shutt in Austin, Texas. I may have disagreed with some of your choices, such as the Kevin Smith and Wes Anderson troops. That's fine. I get it. I'm in the minority on those. However, there was one omission I was truly shocked by. The names Groucho, Harpo, and Chico. How the Marx Brothers, which would easily have been my number one, missed the cut and were not even mentioned anywhere is really hard to wrap my head around. The consistent wit, wordplay, and anarchy have been unmatched on the silver screen. Christopher Guest's troop would have been my number two, so at least that got some love. Laura Ellis says, I was listening to the podcast on my way home today and was horrified that you did not see fit to include either the Marx Brothers or Monty Python in your top five ensemble list. I had just donated to the cause on Friday and now feel that I should demand my money back. Just kidding. The Marx Brothers started in vaudeville and worked together so well that even when improvising, each knew what the other was doing. The films, especially Animal Crackers, Duck Soup, and A Night at the Opera are classics. So we did eventually... Largely because of this list and this feedback, yeah, that was get the motivation. to a Marx Brothers marathon, and I don't know after that marathon that <laughs> we still would have put them in our top five because we didn't love a lot of those films. Appreciated a lot of the performances. Josh certainly didn't appreciate one of the performances. Oh, and Harpo. Some of the jokes and the gags were great, and we even did really appreciate some of the films. I think overall, I liked more films than I disliked, but I wasn't in love with the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I mean. Little did listeners know it was only going to get worse. Yeah, I I did Just like ourselves in the foot some of the films as well. But I'm sorry, I would not retroactively put them on this list. Mm. We also heard from Bevan Croft in the spirit of Josh's pick of Billy Wilder, Jack Lemmon, and I.A.L. Diamond. The ensemble below may also deserve mention: Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, and Marshall Brickman. Brickman co-wrote the following films with Allen directing and starring alongside Diane Keaton: Sleeper, Annie Hall, Manhattan, and Manhattan Murder Mystery. <laughs> It's a good choice, especially for a Woody guy like me, but of those four, I only love Annie Hall in Manhattan, so maybe wouldn't quite make the cut. Of course, Annie Hall in Manhattan, two of my all-time favorite films. That has to count for something. Good choice there, Bevan. Joe Norcross in Minneapolis closes us out. I was also listening to the top five comedy ensembles and thought I'd give a shout-out to the Alec Guinness Ealing Studios comedies, Lady Killers, Kind Hearts and Coronets, etc. I've recently seen four of the five, and discovering each of them was as excellent an experience as discovering The Archers last year. Powell and Pressburger there. Possible marathon subject. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. We've got a long list, and it is always growing. We did discuss one of those Alec Guinness Ealing comedies. I'm positive during a marathon pre Josh Larson, it was our classic heist movies marathon. And we watched the Lavender Hill mob. Well, look at you. So seen one of them. And I believe I caught up with kind hearts and cornets later for an eventual top five. So I have seen some of those films, but there are many others we do need to get to at some point. Those are our top five comedy ensembles. We still want to hear your picks. If you didn't get a chance to hear that top five originally, haven't written in, haven't chided us for not properly appreciating the Marx Brothers, that's fine. We can take it. 
Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, and top fives. Also there, take a moment and vote in the current Filmspotting poll. It is a Tom Cruise deathmatch, Top Gun versus A Few Good Men. Goosebumps. Indeed. Out in limited release this weekend, Mr. Holmes. This is Ian McKellen as a long-retired Sherlock Holmes haunted by a 50-year-old case directed by Bill Condon, who has, of course, directed McKellen before in Gods and Monsters. Here in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center, Fidelio, Alice's Odyssey. This is a movie about a female engineer aboard a freighter who's torn between her faithful fiancé and sexual freedom on the high seas. I bring this one up because, do you recall... That last year, during our top 10 films of 2014 show, Mallory Andrews from Clio Journal listed Fidelio, Alice's Odyssey, as her favorite film of the year. That's where I heard that before. So now we can finally see it here in Chicago at the Music Box, a movie that's been getting all sorts of good buzz. And I think next week on the show, Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps will probably spend a few minutes on it. Tangerine, this is a movie about transgender sex workers who track down a pimp. In L.A., our buddy David Ehrlich said of it, a reinvigorating reminder of what indie filmmaking can and should do. Out in wide release, Paul Rudd is in the Peyton Reed-directed Ant-Man, and Trainwreck, starring Amy Schumer, opens wide as well. Josh, recommending it? Have you decided yet where you land on this? No. There's like 20 seconds left in the show. I know. Come on. Letterboxed. You can find my final oh, review, geez. or at least my final hope, star rating over at Letterboxd. I hope you're not up all night over this. <laughs> I may be. Next week, as we have promised, The Dissolve takes over film spotting. We hope you tune in for that. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Jason Isbell. It comes from the new album, Something More Than Free. There's more information at jasonisbell.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Okay. You didn't you didn't sneak into another theater? It, one theater. Oh. Small town Iowa, yeah. man. They they yeah. now split it up into like three, sure. but it was just There's one like 30 big seats in each yeah. each one. Yeah. <laughs> we had to leave. Yeah, we just left. We were like we're not watching this. <laughs> I I would I would love to see you demanding your money back. Well, you know, no, they didn't even hesitate. They like we like they're like because we weren't the only ones who got up and left. Like, I think a bunch of us were idiots and we didn't know we were walking into. And they just like, yeah, they gave us a refund. <laughs> so. Oh. Okay.